We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Lift off. We have lift off. Hello and welcome back to my 10 Questions podcast, it's been a while. This week my guest is the radio host, actor and comedian Merrick Watts. Most people know Merrick from his long-term partnership with Tim Ross, who I interviewed for this show back in 2017. From the late 1990s to 2011, Merrick and Rosso were the most popular comedy duo in the country. They created multiple radio and television shows, which we'll discuss in detail as this episode unfolds. When their partnership ended, Merrick went on to host radio shows on Triple M and Two Day FM, including Merrick and the Highway Patrol and Merrick and Australia, which turned into Merrickville. As an actor, he appeared as an advisor to the Prime Minister in Working Dog's 2008 comedy series, The Hollow Men, opposite Lockie Hume and Rob Sitch, and Marty Johnson in 2009's Underbelly, The Tale of Two Cities. Last year, Merrick was one of three celebrities to pass SAS Australia's grueling two-week challenge. With the comedian leaving many elite athletes in his wake, it was a huge effort for Merrick and a show I watched every minute of, so I was keen to discuss that before we got down to the 10 questions. Haven't you, haven't you made, like, TV that is not the opposite of that, but, like, you know, is it just a it's completely different world? I wouldn't have picked you for somebody who would have seen SAS. Or did, you, or did you just see the promos and love the promos? Um, no, I'm really into that stuff. I'm really into this kind of uh, heroism from a distance. You know, I don't want to actually do it. I don't want yeah. to be you. I just want to watch you do it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm more into the um, masochist part of, of doing it. You know, it's the funny thing is I see something like that and I just, the first time I ever saw it, I was like, oh, that looks awful, but I can't stop watching it. And then I was like, I, I think I really would like to do that. Yeah. Oh, mate. It, and, you know, did, I mean, the preparation to to do it, I mean, how many weeks did you did you train or did you prepare yourself? I mean. Oh, wow. yeah. Heaps. Like, by the time I actually did it, I'd had six months of prep. So, oh. like, and I took it pretty seriously because, you know, if there's one thing I am, it's um insane. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I took it way too seriously as only I can. And um, I trained pretty hard. It was weird. I, I didn't, like, have a personal trainer or anything like that. I only found out afterwards that they're not everyone, but lots of people had, like, trainers or had sporting backgrounds and stuff like that. I was just a classic case of, I'll just do heaps of push-ups. I'll just do heaps of push-ups. <laughs> And I'll just do lots of running and heaps of push push-ups. And it turns out that's exactly what was required. Oh, so oh. it's I've only been kind of, you know, at, at a decent level of fitness in the last kind of five years or something like that. But yeah, I put some yeah. I put some K's away before I went on that course, that's for sure. Because if you don't, you will die. Like oh. I mean, that 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 show, I know that you and you know this Adam too, like with um with television, there's a lot of trickery and there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and there's a mm. lot of like, okay, let's just stop down and let's retake that. That never, ever happened until the very last two minutes of the show when they said, oh, sorry, we just need to get you out of the helicopter uh, just to do a piece of camera, which will never appear on television. And I was like, great. Oh, my God. Wow. So that, was, that was the only other time. Otherwise, the cameras, it's just there is no conversations with producers. There's no pickups. There's no stops. There's no second chances. 
if there's if something goes wrong, you, you have to deal with it in real time. Otherwise, it's there's no one there going, oh, okay, sorry, Merrick's got a problem with his sled. It's backwards. Because <laughs> I did that. I, uh, there was a moment there where I just went, I'm sorry, um, my, my sled is different to everybody else's sled. Um, I mean, it's got the 60 kilograms on it that I'm expected to carry up a fucking mountain. Um, but my harness is, it's, it's around the wrong way. And they just looked at me like, so? And I was like, don't we, don't we all just stop for a second and wait for Merrick so that we can just do this properly? And they were just like, mate, not our problem. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a very, very hard day. What day was that? I'm trying to remember the sled. Uh, it was when we, we had to go up a mountain with about yeah, 60. You're- yeah, you're dragging the harness it. On. Yeah, well, what's interesting is that because of the sled kerfuffle at the start, I was absolutely dead last by 50 metres. And uh, Aunt Middleton came up and yelled at me oh, and said, um, he could see that it was all a debacle because my sled was the wrong way around. So I was just dragging the wake. So it's like, you know, it's, it's like dragging the arse end of a boat. Yeah, and, yeah. And um, <laughs> he said, I expect to see you finish top three, number 10. And I was just like... Mate, I'll be lucky if I get 10 meters with this thing. But it was um it was it turned out to be a great day because at the uh, at the end of it I, I finished I finished first. I went from last to first. So that's right. Yeah. I, I remember um, now. It, oh, mate, it was phenomenal. It was I was um a bit heartbroken for Mitchell Johnson, being a cricket fan. Yeah, yeah he's a great bloke. I, I wasn't as heartbroken for him as uh, other people because he broke my ribs. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, he knocked me unconscious and broke one of my ribs. So, so that was the, the boat, wasn't it? No, that was. I was on the first day, the very first. We jumped, with, threw us out of a helicopter, and like that wasn't bad enough. And then they said, "Okay, let's have a boxing match." Merrick, you fight Mitchell Johnson because you know what? We see, we know him to be a pacifist. <laughs> if you're a cricket fan, you know Mitchell Johnson not passive, wow. not passive. No. Um, so Mitchell, within about seriously, within about five or six seconds, had hit me in, in the left rib and, and cracked one of my ribs, and then punched my brain in. So. Oh my god! But the oh funny thing is, like, it, the funny thing is that, like, instantly after it, like, we were just like, bang, that's it. It's that it was it was there was absolutely no personal ill feelings. And Mitchell and I got along really, really well. I was very sad when when Mitchell um, dropped off the course. Great bike, top top yeah, bike, yeah. Mitchell. I could talk about SAS all day, and we'll certainly come back to it, but let's get to why we're here and go to the first question. When was Merrick most happy? I gave this some thought, um, and I, I think, you know, I've had really great happy periods in my life, and I think that uh, if I had to think of the time when I was just universally and entirely happy all the time was the ages of about probably, I don't know, three till about 10, I was just in... Um, perpetual happiness and I don't remember anything but kind of great times and being outdoors I lived in a, in a great house with a great family and um, I had lots of room to climb trees and explore and build and go wherever I wanted my parents were pretty relaxed um, so I had a really kind of great moment there as a kid but I, I was, when I was looked at the question I was thinking about that and I think the the reason why it was time when I was my most happy is because my imagination was my best friend. Mm. Like I just like, you know, what happens is that, you know, life and the perfunctory necessities of life slowly um, decrease your, your ability to be imaginative. And when mm. I think about it, like I love nothing more than being imaginative. I love to think of things and create things in my own mind. 
Mate, I've been thinking about the same thing recently. I've just been reading um, Tarantino's novel uh, based on his movie. It's the one with Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the imagination of that guy is extraordinary. And I was just thinking, have I? I feel like, you know, from so many years of network notes and producers' notes and everything that I've kind of stymied my imagination, you know, it's like, it, and I've just got to recapture it again somehow. The thing is, your imagination knows no boundaries. Like, I know that's a, it's a cliche, but when you think about it, if you if you sit in a room and you allow your imagination to run wild, it doesn't go, oh, I've just got to tick this box. Oh, I've just got to tick this box. I've just got to, you know, there's a programmer who suggested I should do this or a producer who wants, who said to me, I need to, your, your imagination gives zero Fs about the outside world. It just wants to flow like a river. Mm, and yeah. as you get older what happens is as soon as your imagination starts to <clears throat> be um engaged like that often you know in media um you'll have somebody who will say oh hang on a second oh just a second and so you constantly stop start stopping and, it, and i think that's what it doesn't stop you being imaginative what it does is it just puts a million speed humps in the way whereas when you're a child you can literally sit. I used to do it all the time. I used to sit on the ground in my house and imagine what it would be like to be a bird at the top of a pine tree. And an hour later, I'd be going, wow, that was cool. That was That's a good great. journey. That was a great journey I just had there. Oh, wow. <laughs> when are you doing that as an adult? Unless, of course, you're a heroine, <laughs> deeply, deeply unconscious of the world. That's right, mate. That's beautiful. Um, who would you well, like being, to being on heroin looking at birds? I don't know, <laughs> no, you did it without heroin. It was great. Yeah, that's a great thing I did without it. <laughs> Who would you like to apologize to and why? Um, look, I, I reckon I have apologized to all the people that I feel I need to apologize. There's probably other people who think that I need to apologize to them, and I probably do, but I I don't spend a lot of time thinking about apologies or regrets. I think it's um it's, I think that you, the most important thing to do is to learn from the mistakes that you made that it would lead you to an apology. Mm-hmm. Um, so the people that I think I've, that I've needed to apologize to, I have. I'm mm-hmm. pretty conscious of that. And I'm certainly not, I don't walk away from an apology. If, I, if one's due, I will do it. I, I, I'm happy to do that. But I, I think it's a, um, it's a difficult one to think of somebody that I want to apologize to. I think that takes too much negative space. I think it, it takes me away. It's just, it, it's, uh, it's, it, it's a spiral. Thinking about people that you can apologize to me is it's not, not as though you're living without any kind of conscious understanding of your own actions. It's just fruitless. Mm. If, you, if you really need to think about people you, you need to apologize to, you, you need to apologize to yourself for not being creative enough. Go mm. out there and live your life. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But having said that, Adam, there is one person that I think I should uh, apologise to. Um, it was a kid. I can't remember his name. Um, I reckon I was about eight years of age and I was in a cross-country running race at school. And uh, I don't want to brag, but I was in the, uh, the top two. And it was, looking, it was looking pretty good. And I'm a competitive person, you know. And I started to realize as we're getting closer to the finish line that this kid who was running next to me was still had heaps in the tank and I was running out of gas. 
And we were running along what you would commonly refer to as a ravine. And down on the left-hand side was a significant slope that I think led directly to death. And as I was running and realised I was not going to beat him, I went, I mean, it's an outdoor cross-country race. There's not really a lot of spectators, you know, given it's for eight-year-olds. I'll just push you off the cliff. <laughs> so with my last exertion of energy, I ran up next to him and just my left hand just pushed him gently down the ravine. <laughs> and he was never seen again. I think there was a moment there where I actually believed Merrick did push his schoolmate down a ravine, and probably about seven moments when this show's lawyers actually felt the same, but we're all okay now. Moving on to what is Merrick's greatest regret? Yeah, one thing I regret is um, placing too much undeserved trust in people, um, particularly companies and employers. Mm-hmm. Um, I reckon I'm, I've always been a very, very trusting person. I just always think that people are always out to do the best thing. And at 47, you know, I, I was only realising now that's not the case. People mm. don't don't want um, the best for other people. People are not truthful. People um, will say one thing and do another. And, and um, I think that I've always had a, a, a you know an, a, a trust in other people. And sometimes, particularly in media, it, you know, that can be misplaced mm-hmm. um, because you place it to a company and you think that those, you know, the company might value those things that you value. Um, even if they say they do, they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or individuals. But I think that, you know, a lot of that misplaced trust and where it's been burnt for me, I, I think it's because I've allowed people, as a result of that trust, I've allowed people to manipulate me. So my, mm-hmm. my greatest regret is actually about allowing other people to manipulate me. Um, mm-hmm. My behaviour allowed me to manipulate how I feel, you know, my sense of worth. I've allowed people to, I've been in situations where people have been able to manipulate my own value, my own sense of self-worth. Mm-hmm. And that that's my regret. If I look back at that, I think I shouldn't have, I, I really wish I could have corrected that. Um, but, you know, the positive is, is that, you know, I'm, I'm aware of it and it's led me to other great things. It's led me to correct that. You know, that was really honestly one of, the, one of the main kind of reasons I went and did SAS Australia and was to recapture that, that belief and that strength that I had internally that had been eroded by other people, that I'd allowed other people to erode by misplaced trust. So that was a huge positive. And the other positive is that, you know, being so trusting and and being so um, optimistic about other people has led me to awesome friendships, amazing decisions in life, and you know, and meeting wonderful and working with wonderful people because I have trusted them implicitly. So I think it's one of those things, you know, it's about it's about a balance. You know, I look at how I've put my career or my or my faith in my work in, in other people who have been so wonderful. And that the flow-on effect has been enormous. I'm thinking, you know, particularly of people like Working Dog. When I went and did Hollow Men with the Working Dog guys, I put all of my faith in them because I had no idea what I was doing. Mate, you're so no. great in that. You're so great in that. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. They were so great. Oh, right. but that, okay. Yeah. This is because I oh, know seriously, like I just put all of my faith, and they just said, "Just you, you can do this." Have and I had so much faith in 
and trust in them and their systems that it allowed me to be good. Yeah. And it also, it changed the way I viewed myself as a person and it changed the way I viewed myself as um, a professional as well. So like, you know, even though that that's a huge positive that I could never take away. So there's been negatives and there's been positives, but to answer your question, which I've taken about 45 minutes to do, um, I think that the one regret is that I've allowed certain people to um, control my own self-worth or control mm. my my sense of myself. Yeah, I think you've spoken about a, a creative life there. You know, yeah. you've just defined what we all go through. Yep. Um, and, it, it, you know, I'm always saying to myself, if I get angry about things that you're just along that theme i'm I'm most angry with myself <laughs> you know i'm always angry going why did you trust that person why you know yeah yeah it, it was obvious wasn't it it was obvious that they were lying to you yeah um, and look there's so much the nature of the business though isn't it yeah but we we have to keep out you know it kind of in a way harks back to that that innocence you're talking about before with imagination because if you're not innocent it's very difficult to be creative and yeah you know, yep. so we're, we're sitting ducks a little bit. Yeah, that's a really good point. If, if you're constantly on guard and constantly in hypervigilance um, and a sense of alert for danger of people, mm -hmm. then you're never going to be able to become creative. You're yeah. not going to be able to become creative. You, you know, you're just constantly hypervigilant is not, mm. it's, the, it's, and I also think that's, you know, that kind of, um, that lack of self-confidence or that lack of uh, support and, and of yourself is counterproductive to being um, creative as well. Mm. You know, fear, fear is the enemy of creativity. Yeah. It's, it's the polar opposite. Fear is, you know, the opposite of lots of things of, of security, safety and everything else. But it's also, fear is the death of creativity. Mm. If you want to see creativity die, give somebody a reason to be fearful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Which is most of entertainment. Industry. That's right. That's <laughs> right. I mean, it's just, we're, we're, you know, creating it a straitjacket a lot of the time, but we really do love it. And we ask all potential employers to not hesitate to employ us. The next question I asked Merrick is what he would still need to do to feel he'd lived a satisfactory life. I feel like I have lived a satisfactory life. That's great. I have, I felt that for a long time, but the problem is, is that satisfactory to me is not enough. Mm -hmm. um, have I led a good life yet? It, you know, if I fell off the branch tomorrow, I've had a good one and I wouldn't complain. Well, I would because it'd be dead, but I wouldn't because it'd be dead. Um, <laughs> but it's about what makes a great life. And for me, there's still so much that I want to do. And I'm, I'm a very, very determined person. So there's still like, I feel like if anything, like I'm actually moving into the second chapter of my life. Like I'm, I'm in it now and I've transitioned out of one first chapter of my life and I'm now in a second chapter of my life. And I, I, it's, I find it intoxicatingly um, joyful. I, I really, I really like it. I, I'm aware of it. I'm not fearful of my age. I'm not fearful of what I've done in the past. I'm not trying to repeat what I've done in the past. I'm, I'm in it opening up a second chapter of my life. Um, so, I, and I think that knowing that I've got more things that I want to do um, allows me to feel satisfied, mm. but it, it also too propels me to do more and to complete the next chapter. 
a couple of headlines. What what what's uh um like what, what are they? Or, sorry. Yeah. What are they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what kind of things are we talking about here? Um. I think that, well, for, for me, it is most definitely uh, my business, which is Grapes of Mirth. So I started the company a few years ago when I left radio. I started this company, which is a combination of my love of comedy and wine. So uh, Grapes of Mirth does, um, we do comedy, you know, comedy events and um, we're building a festival at the moment. We're constantly building festivals, but we, we tour them in uh, wineries and wine regions all around Australia. So I basically just bring large scale comedy um, events and festivals to wine regions around the country and I combine the, my, my two loves which is comedy and wine and, and, and I love people I love yeah. people yeah yeah so, yeah um and that's that's actually like that's the pillars on all of on all of our kind of um uh, you know station and everything which is you know um comedy wine people that's mm. they're, the, they're the three things that I love um so that you know starting another a brave new chapter having kind of done radio for 20 years I was like I want to do something different. I have to be passionate about it, otherwise it won't succeed. And I kind of really thought about it. And I kind of stumbled across it um, a few years ago. And it's, you know, it's not been easy, obviously, running events during COVID, but, uh, you know, I'm pretty asinine. And yeah. um, I just pushed through, but I, I, I love it. So for me, that's, and that's about creating something again, being imaginative and going, what can we do in a festival? What can we create? Who can we bring to this? What does it look like? Yeah, yeah. So it opens up those parameters again, you know, where you, you you can think and do whatever you like, but there's no one for the first time in a very long time, there's no one saying to me, no, there's people who my, my partners, my business partners will say, here's great idea, but you're not Elon Musk. So yeah. calm down. <laughs> um, so they keep people keep you in check rather than keep you down. Interesting, because you know, in in SAS, you did talk about um, there being a, a slight down period after you finished radio. Definitely, and and then this was this part of the kind of you happened upon this, and then that made you give you more focus, give you no, no, no. I left, I left radio. Uh, I'd already tested and trialed grapes and Smith, and I was like, oh, this is this is a hundred percent going to work, and then. You know, I had a real moment where I didn't want to leave radio. I loved the last year I was working on radio full time, which was at doing drive at Triple N. And it was a really, really nice way to leave radio. I'm really glad that I left left radio loving it. Um, and it was good. So uh, then I went off and started Grapes of Mirth. And it was a bit of, I, it was a, bit of a, a process that I was unfamiliar with. I didn't think it would take as long. I thought, um, you know, everything's so immediate in radio. I just expected things would move a lot faster. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what I'd noticed and what I'm kind of aware of now, um, and I have to be uh, mindful of this now, is that the thing that I loved about radio is working with people and working with the team. I love to be in an elite, high-pressure environment yeah. with other people. Yeah. And that's when I really, that's when I really kind of come to life. So what happened is after radio, I was kind of like working with my business partner and we're, you know, everything was just kind of very slow and, you know, it's it's largely seasonal work, so it takes a long time to get any any momentum and any traction. And after about, I think it was after about two years, I just fell into a slump. I was just like, man, everything just is taking so long, and I felt very isolated. I was out of routine. I started sleeping like late for me, late, you know, like nine a.m. or beyond. Yeah. And I was just like, I oh, go, oh, I know what this is. This is 
you know, quite frankly, these are the very early signs of slipping into depression and I am yeah. not, I'm not going to do that. So uh, being mindful of that, I knew it was, um, I, I needed something to kind of shake me out and get my confidence back and get around something high pressure, like yep. super, not about just the jeopardy of running a small business. I mean, like pressure environments like radio is. Yep. Um, and SAS came along and I just went, that is 100% for me, 100%. I'm going to go and do that and I'm going to go and crush it. Yeah. And when I do, I'll get back, I'll get back my true self. I'll, I'll get back my confidence. I'll get back who I am. And it, and it, and it came did. true. Yeah, 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 that's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, if I failed it, I'd be an absolute mess. Now. <laughs> I mean, honestly, seriously, like that is like one of the worst life gambles, Merrick. Like, if anything, don't. That's not advice for people. Don't put all of your eggs in one stupid television basket, <laughs> mate. It, that's it, a huge gamble that paid off, and. And by the way, I was looking, you lost six and a half kilos too. So you must have looked amazing when you came out. You just must have oh, I, was, I was skinny, but I'd lost a, a lot of that was muscle, to be honest. Like oh, really? I, yeah, yeah. I went in around about 84 kilograms, I reckon. Um, but I was pretty lean and fit. And then I came out, I don't even know what I weigh, but I, I guesstimate probably about 78 um, yeah. or more. And then, um, but it was not, all the fat was all gone. There was no fat on me at all. And my arms and, and everything was just like, my face was really gaunt, but my, the muscle had eaten away. And it's a weird thing that happens. Two weeks of high pressure, you know, physical mm. um, endurance like that uh, on a phenomenal scale, your body goes into a different mode. It goes into survival mode and your body literally just eats itself. It yeah. just goes, well, we're just going to eat your muscle. And you yeah. go, what are you, what are you doing there, Tiger? Well, we're eating you. And you go, this is weird. Why are you eating me? We're friends. <laughs> Nothing else here. Yeah, um, just well, you know, if you just keep giving us one cup of porridge a day, we're gonna eat you. And I go, stop eating me. We're friends. Um, and, and it's it's weird. It's a weird thing. Because you you're doing huge. I mean, not eating and a huge aerobic load that you're putting on yourself. That's it. You know? That's it. So I actually, I lost um, more weight. I was down to about 82 and a half or 83 kilos or something like that. And I actually bulked up just before I went on. I went, I'm too thin. I've, I've, I've lost yeah. too much body fat. And I need to put some body fat um, on my body because I'm going to, it's going to be cold. It's going to be very, very cold. And I'm going to need body fat. Wow. That's something I would never have considered. And another reason why I'm in awe of anyone who went on that show. Now we move on to who was the person who influenced Merrick the most and why? Oh, I've seen so many so many great people who have influenced me, but I have to say the person who probably influenced me the most would have to be Rosso. You know, yeah. um, I'd love to say mentors, like, you know, I've had lots of fantastic mentors who have influenced me and have, and have given me so much, but the question is, who's influenced you? And I'd have to say Rosso. Mm. Um, because Rosso, um, one of the great things, such an intelligent observation, and he said this very, very early. He said, jokes anyone can do, ideas are the win. That is, that is the more important thing. The jokes will come from having the ideas, but the ideas and the concepts are the most important thing. Wow. And, and he's right. Yeah, he's yeah, right. Yeah. Like, the best idea in the room will always win. Yeah. yeah. Um, the best joke is just a joke. I, I say this to, to, you know, to people when... Uh, they talk about us as, as a duo is that Russell and I are very, very different people. Like mm -hmm. our personality types are very, very different and our interests are polar. Yeah. But we have exactly the same sense of humor. 
Yeah. So we, we find the same things funny. And to, to kind of like, you know, offer some transparency about the meaning of that is that if even now I reckon we would still do it. If Ross and I were sitting in the lobby of a hotel and uh, people were walking in and out, Rosso and I would look at each other and without saying a word, we would know the joke. We would see somebody and just say that person's wearing yellow socks. We would look at each other and we would both go, oh, mate, yellow socks. <laughs> and, you know, we would just, it's just, we would see, uh, see, we see the same jokes. We see where the jokes are. We see the same things. It's the same sense of humour. We see where it's at. It, so yeah. that's, that's kind of what I mean. And that's, like, you can be completely different in your personality types and your interests but that commonality is i think what a lot of people call chemistry that's right um and you know from my perspective hearing you guys in the early 90s on triple j was like oh you know it was like you got me even though you didn't know me i was like these people are talking to me it's it was it was such a revelation because i'd never heard anyone on radio who i really you know who I felt kind of a kinship with. And it was when I first heard you two and, and you're kind of getting into the minutiae of what it is to be Australian or whatever, you know, it, oh, yeah. it was something that really spoke to me. That was a, that was a time when nationalism was not a filthy, dirty word, you know, yeah. national. And it was, it was also too, it was very kind of piss take tongue and cheek celebration. Yeah. You know, Ross, someone always about like, how good is Australia? And yeah. then we'd, we'd point out how stupid we are. Do you know what I mean? Like this, we just, we just, we'd celebrate Australian failures in a way that other people would just go, yes, yes, I want to celebrate that failure that we've got. Totally and, resonated. And and it, and it did. It resonated particularly with you know the Gen X um, people, you know the, the Generation X generation. You know that, that those people are like, yeah, let's celebrate failure. Let's celebrate our quirks and our, and our flaws. Let's talk about Alan Bond like he's the greatest bloke in the world. Because he is like we would never say Bondi, what a, what an asshole, what a great, you know, what an awful person. We go, how good's Bondi? You know, like, <laughs> just go, how good's that guy? Built a marina, cost millions and millions of dollars, did a runner on it. What a great bloke! What a great bloke! Brilliant. Sold, sold Channel Nine at a loss. How do you do that? That takes a special effort to take something that is worth so much money and then make it worth less money. And then sell it back to the person that you bought it from. You know, that is bloody Aussie ingenuity. And that's, that's how Russell and I addressed everything. We were just like, everything is unreal, even the dumb stuff. Like, no matter how, like, unless it was abhorrent, which it was, like, we were never into, you know, race rights or that kind of stupid, no. you know, nationalism. We were, we were patriotic in a way and nationalistic in a way that was a celebration of the foibles of Australians. American Rosso started on Triple J in 1998, moved to Nova in 2001, and ended their 11-year partnership in 2009. During that time, they also made the TV shows Planet American Rosso for the Comedy Channel, American Rosso Unplanned for Channel 9, the B Team for Channel 10, and then returning to the Comedy Channel for the American Rosso Show. Moving on to question six, when was the last time Merrick cried and why? It's an interesting thing. I, I was born without tear ducts. Oh, wow. Um, well, that's what I tell people all the time because oh. it's a lie. Um, <laughs> but, a, I gotcha. They went down the ravine. It was yeah. a- <laughs> See ya. <laughs> 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 
Um, yeah, no, it's I, I just uh, people, you know, talk about being too tough to cry. I just I'm not a crier. I don't. I really I don't cry. I've never really been a cry. If I'm if I'm in pain, if I'm um, if I'm in physical pain, tears are the last thing that is going to happen. Swearing, yeah. swearing is high up there. Um, when I'm really happy, like it, you know, my own wedding or other people's weddings and like that, I'm happy. So why cry? I don't get it. Like that's fine. The people do, but I don't get that. Um, I don't see beautiful moments and cry. Um, and I'm just not. I'm just not that person. Death makes me cry, and it's mm-hmm. it's always related to death. So. Um, the last time I cried uh, was only a couple of months ago because my son, uh, his cat was run over and killed and he loved oh, his cat. Yeah. Now he's, he's only 11 at the time. He's uh, his best friend. He, this, you know, his buddy got run over and it was not that I was mourning the loss of the cat. I was like, you know, it's not that I didn't like cat, but it wasn't enough to, to do that. It was seeing the devastation and the loss of innocence in my son. Mm, yeah. You know, he got to 12 years of age and he has never really comprehended or understood or been confronted by loss and, and death and having to explain to him and, and seeing his internal turmoil at, you know, the, the loss was profound and when he was crying and 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 wailing it it broke me yeah no i 100 percent get that yeah i mean not Um, enough for me to to cry in the retelling (laughs) no no you you don't need to (laughs) i'm not going to cry now i know you try you probably very much try to get your your guests to do that to cry (laughs) yeah andrew denton essentially yeah well there's an old saying in radio mate which is tears mean ticks in diaries, that's what they used to say. Make your audience cry and you'll rate well. Yeah. True. Tears mean ticks. There's an old saying in acting, which is if you cry, your audience won't cry. Ooh. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't know that because I'm not a very good actor. <laughs> <Not> true. <laughs> no, I couldn't cry. I couldn't it's cry like, if I tried. You and Lockie Hume just tearing up the screen. Oh no, he could cry, but he's probably in a ball right now crying. Jeez, he's not even he's not even method acting. Oh mate, he's just reading JFK stuff and just uh, <laughs> pouring. <laughs> That's he's just, Lockie just likes trying, JFK. He's, he's just he's going to Bunnings to get a spade to dig up Jimmy Hoffa and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I've got to get I've got to interview him one day. Um, what's your current state of mind? Um, well, I would say good, but you know, good is, good is, you know, pretty generic. Um, I would say very focused, very determined, um, and yeah, focused and determined, but balanced, focused, determined and balanced. Yeah. I really like this, uh, the determination thing. Where, where does that come from? Has it always been there or was it something that you'd learned? Uh, determination is, I reckon, if there's two words that best kind of encapsulate my um, internal drive is uh, determination and resilience. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and that's that's how I was able to get through um, SAS Australia is those two things. I was determined I would not yeah. quit and never quit. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to, it's not going to happen. At no stage ever once did I ever think about quitting. Never crossed my mind, not once. Brilliant. Um, if I say, I always say this to people, if I say I'm going to do it, it's going to get done. 
Because mm-hmm. I'm determined. I know that I will just get it done. I will, it, will just, it will just get done. Um, but with that, you know, it comes resilience as well. Because uh, determination is great, but if you don't have resilience, you won't be you won't be able to fulfill the determination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, I'm pretty resilient. I can take I can take a, a pretty good beating physically, mentally, um, and get up off the mat. That's and, great. And go again, and go again, and go again, and go again. Um, was there a point where you went, oh, because you obviously were as a kid probably, and so w- w- was there a point where you went, oh, my my fellow humans aren't as determined or resilient as me? You know what? I'll be honest. Like I <clears throat> only in recent years. With a better understanding of myself, if I realised that people generally are not, and that's okay, like you know they've got, yeah. you know, different attributes, and and you know people are far more balanced or they're far more perceptive or or whatever it is, you know, they you can't have every combination of everything. Um, you can only kind of have you know a couple of traits that are truly unique to you. But in my mind, I was always like everybody's as determined as I. Yeah, yeah. So I've got, I've got to be more determined. I've got to be more determined <laughs> than me because everybody's more, everyone's at my level. And then I kind of realized that no, people are not. And they're not, and they don't have to be because determination is just a form of, you know, being asinine in some ways mm. um, and fearful. You know, the reason why I'm pretty aware of who I am and why I am. And one of the reasons why I'm determined is because I cannot stand failure or quitting. I hate yeah. it. I absolutely hate it. And so it's an enormous emotional driver for me. So um, is, there, is there a point where sometimes you go, okay, you know, we are going to withdraw the troops, you know, like not, not quitting, but, you know, at some stage, do you, have you banged your head against a brick wall? Over, I mean, do you know when to retreat? Yeah, yeah, that's strategic. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, and I can do that um, because otherwise, you know, that's just insane. You know, you've got to know yeah. when to, to quit. The other thing too is the funny thing is I don't – I. Don't judge people who quit. Like if people quit, like even things like with SAS Australia, when people quit, I don't think it's weak. I don't. I only, it's only in the framework of me. It's yeah. only on me. Quitting yeah. for me is intolerable. I cannot do it. Quitting in other people, it's like, yeah, why would you quit? That looks stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you've got to live, they've all got to live their lives and, you know, um, and you kind of go, well, I want to live my life. You know, I, I don't want yeah. to quit. Um, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Um, I think as a, as a, like a, as a thing, my greatest achievement, I think, would be honestly probably my son saying to me, Dad, you are a fantastic father. Oh, um, wow. When was that? It, it was only three days ago. Oh, wow, man. That's great. It's, it's taken a long time. It's taken a lot of work. There's been a lot of, like, I've left notes everywhere, lots of post-it <laughs> notes. I'm an amazing father. I'm an amazing father. It's in your lunchbox. Um, there's been a lot of hints. Um, but he, he literally just sat me down. I told my wife, too, that he sat me down on, on the weekend and he just said, pulled me, like, he's very cognitive and very emotionally intelligent boy mm-hmm. and he's 12 so he's articulate as well and he just said to me he goes dad you are a fantastic father he said you just you're so caring and you're so thoughtful for everyone and I just went 
And I went, oh, like, oh if only I was born with tear ducts. Um, <laughs> um, but that that's a huge, I think that's wow. probably one of my greatest achievements is, is being recognised by my son as a good father. It's, mate, it's brilliant. Um, you know, I haven't asked my daughter, but to be honest, she's so much like me that she probably doesn't care. She's out being, she's super, she's super determined, super determined. So she, we don't worry. Yeah, we don't worry about her too much. She's she's got plenty of self confidence. That one. I love when it crosses genders. You know, in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah me too. Me it's too. Really I, 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 I say to my son all the time, and he's probably within earshot at the moment. But I, I, it's true. I don't want my son to be like me at all. Mm. You know, I always I say to him openly, "Son, when I grow up, I want to be you." Yeah, that's that's lovely. Yeah, because he's awesome. He's all the things I wish that I, I was and and would be. But it's my, you know, my die is cast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get. It. I just just read the gender thing. It reminds me of um, uh, Lincoln Lewis, Wally Lewis's son, mm. and, and I spoke to him, and he goes, "I said, what was it like? You know, not, you know, kind of living in that shadow." And he said, "Well, yeah, I just realised I was really shit at sport at a very young age, and then." My sister came along and she had the shoulders and the coordination and blah, 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 you know. Yeah. Um, and I went, oh, well, that's it. And she plays water polo for Australia. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It's, it, it's funny how that works, though, isn't it? Like, you know, it's, you think that you, I think it's a, it's a huge, it's a very erroneous um, mentality to have that your son will be like you. That's just—it's never like that. No. It's never like that. But it's—it's it's a better chance that your daughter will display those. Oh, I, th I think I'm—you yeah. know—I'm speaking very generally here. But you know, maybe your daughter will be more like you. And in which case, God help us all. Because, <laughs> because seriously, my daughter is beautiful like her mother, but she's a maniac like her father. So, in like ten years out. time, she'll be she'll be on oh, radio going, "What's the God. deal with Alan Bond?" <laughs> It's Bondi. What? <laughs> um, who, the second last question. Who would you want on your side in a battle and why? Ooh, I reckon a soldier would be good. Yeah, yeah. Preferably I'd... a special forces operator. Yeah, mate. Um, look, I know that... <clears throat> It's there is. It's, I say that obviously it's a it's a joke, but in in reality, honestly, just it, if you were to put it in another context, and the battle was not actually a battlefield, and the battle was to get something done, to build a festival, to to build um, uh, something, a business or something like that. Who would I want? I'd want a soldier. Mm. Special forces operators have. A very, very unique skill set and a very, very unique mindset. And the mindset is what allows them to have the skill set. Mm. And that's what I admire enormously about, you know, um, operators, special forces operators, is it's, it's not what they can do with a gun. It's what they can do with their mind that allows them to do what they do with a gun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I find it fascinating. And that's precisely, you know, I didn't even see the uh, the previews for the show. I just saw SAS Australia and went, wow, that's, I'm watching that. I, I want to know as much about those people as possible, even if it is through the eyes of, um, you know, celebrities going into that, you know, going mm -hmm. into that environment. Well, I think, look, it's soldiers are teams. They told us constantly on, on the show that, and I knew enough special forces operators before I went and did it. And they all said the same thing. They go, it's not physical. 
it's it's really it's going to be you know 70 80 percent mental and the rest will be physical you're only if so long as you're fit so long as you're fit enough to kind of give it a go the rest is going to be mental it's going to be when you are physically broken and you decide that there is just no way of quitting so you know for me there was a moment on day uh, day two, by the end of day two, <laughs> two days out of 14, by the end of day two, I had two fractured ribs and um, was concerned that one of them might puncture me internally because it was broken. And um, <clears throat> and I, I made, it was never, I went and sought medical attention to see whether or not it was as bad, but it was just fractured and the yeah. two ribs are fractured. So I was in a lot of pain, but I've broken ribs before. And I was like, well, this is just going to be pain. This is all this is, it's just pain. I'm not going to die from this. So uh, let's just get cracking. And that was wow. it. And there's no painkillers. There's no, there's, no, there's no help. There's nothing that they gave me that made that situation better. Um, but I just went, well, I'm just going to keep going because that's, that's what you do. Jeez, and, yeah, but that, I think that mentality, and that's very much, that's what, a, that's what an elite soldier would do. And that's yeah. what I was thinking. I was like, well, what would an elite soldier do? They'd just get on with it. So I was yeah. like, well, I'll, I'll just get on with it. And that's what I'm saying. Like, if you've got if you've got a project and you've got a special forces operator, and somebody comes in and goes, "Oh my God, we can't, we don't have the scaffolding for this," a soldier's not going to go, "Oh my God, let's all take a day off." <laughs> I'm going to go. I'm going to go rub some Vicks on my chest because I'm feeling wheezy from this. <laughs> you know, they're not going to do that. That's right. That's they're going to they're going right. to go. Well, okay. What can we build out of this? How can we adapt? How can we switch and move? And it's that adaptability, mm -hmm. that that mental. Um, uh, I suppose a plasticity that they've got that just goes, let's just adapt. Let's just keep yeah. going. Let's just keep surviving. Let's keep moving. Let's keep going. And I, I think that in any circumstance, those guys um, have got a mindset that is applicable. Yeah. That's a really great answer. Um, and, and the final question is, what would you like your last words to be? <laughs> Sweetheart, where did you get that gun? We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Joir. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff.